Uh, to set that context, though, for that discussion and what is to follow, I want to read some verses from Colossians chapter 1 to you, hopefully familiar, as we uh, heard these in a sermon just a few months ago. Colossians chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. It was about a year ago, uh, this time, at the request of the elders, I presented four sermons that emphasized our calling as Christians to make disciples. And the point was to highlight the direction that we saw ourselves and our church ministry going, uh, the direction that we found ourselves increasingly heading, and our attempt to, to think more clearly about how we were going to get there. And although there have been, over the past 12 months, some very small changes visibly to what uh, we have been doing together as a church invisibly behind the scenes. There's been much prayer, there's been much study, much discussion, and even some training that has been taking place. And all of that has been happening with the aim of uh, not revamping, not redoing, not just starting something for the sake of starting something, but refocusing Uh, our identity and mission and ministry as a church. And on one level, now at the end of that uh, year, you will find not much has changed. The same basic things that we have believed and done will remain the same. What we have done, though, is put together what we hope will be a, a crystallization of our ministry into a cohesive vision, rather than just various parts not connected together as a whole. That's one level. On another level, there will be some profound changes. For this focusing process has helped both reveal our weaknesses as a church uh, and even as pastors as well as our strengths. And so throughout this year, we've been forced again and again and again back to uh, the Bible to reevaluate our understanding of what we're to be doing. Uh, what I'm to be doing on Sunday mornings, what uh, what the expectation should be for you and what you're doing uh, throughout the week and as a result of this ministry. And the end result, again, is not a new program. It's not a new emphasis for 2012 that will change in 2013 and will change again in 2014. That's not what we're interested in. Uh, This isn't, furthermore, something radical. It's not something so different that you're going to scratch your head and think, man, I never saw that coming. In fact, especially at the beginning, uh, what you're going to hear, most of you will say, yeah, yeah, we believe that, yeah, we're doing that, yep, yep, yep. But the problem is, if, if what we really believe is what we say we believe, then some changes need to happen in the outworking of those beliefs for our ministry. Because what we, what, how we live and minister is not quite lining up to what we say we believe about God and what he has called us to. So by changing some things up in our ministries and presenting things the way that we will, the goal is to move everyone onto the same page in terms of our thinking and practice. And what we're going to do uh, over the the next four weeks after this one is unpack piece by piece uh, what this vision is going to look like in a far more traditional sermon setting. But this morning the elders have asked me to put together a kind of forest 
picture, a kind of big picture of, uh, of where we want to go, what it's going to look like, why we're doing this, that will serve as kind of a, um, a touchstone for the following weeks as we, as we unlock and unpack the components of what we're looking at. So this morning, if you've got the, uh, the sermon notes uh, sheet there, what you will see is an, expose, an explanation of four foundational convictions and then an explanation of four practical implications. In other words, uh, here are four things. We believe a lot more than just these four things. But in terms of our ministry and how we desire to serve, here are four foundational convictions that we hold to. These are not anything new. These are things that we have believed uh, since I've been here, as far as I can tell. Uh, But what we want to see now are four practical implications of what that should look like, what we hope it will look like in the years to come. Okay, everybody with me and on track? All right, here we go. I've got uh, at least two more pages of notes than usual, so I'm going to be talking fast this morning, okay? First of all, four foundational convictions. The first is this, the centrality of the gospel in God's plan. The centrality of the gospel in God's plan. What is God's plan? What is God trying to accomplish in the world? What is his agenda? Listen to what Peter says in his first letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the gospel, isn't it? If you're a Christian, that is what you believe, that is what you have experienced. A few verses later, he says, concerning this salvation, that is what he just described, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, in the span of just a few verses, Peter has more or less surveyed the whole line of redemptive history. I mean, he has gone back and he has said, this is what God is doing in the Old Testament, and this is how it has come to fruition in the New. He is telling these New Covenant believers that the Old Covenant saints, specifically the prophets of the Old Covenant, were not just serving themselves, they were actually serving them, Christians in this New Covenant era. Why? Because though they had the Spirit of Christ the Holy Spirit in them, causing them to, uh, to see in the, these visions of what was to come, they didn't understand exactly what they were seeing. They, they were prophesying what was to come, and yet, Peter says, they, they longed to look into these things and discuss them and think through them because it was unclear exactly what was going to happen through the sufferings and subsequent glory of Christ. They understood very clearly that Israel was going to experience suffering for their sin, and yet, by God's mercy, they were going to experience glory on the backside of those sufferings. And that through this, God would save his people. But what the prophets didn't understand was that Christ himself would come in Israel's place. He would bear the final suffering that they deserve for their sins, and it was him who would come back from the dead under that suffering to glory afterward. In other words, what they didn't understand was the fullness of the gospel in Christ, yet they were pointing forward to it. And so Peter says one of the most amazing things, it was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you. 
and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Think about what Peter's saying there. All of redemptive history, when you look from Genesis to Malachi, all that is taking place in those books is simply foundation. It is simply building. It is simply preparation and signposts to what happens when Jesus Christ comes. Everything is getting God's people ready for the gospel of Christ, of which we now are recipients. This is why Jesus, when John the Baptist sends some of his disciples uh, to him, and they say, look, are you really the guy? You know, are you really the Messiah that I, that I thought you were, or should we look for, for somebody else? And Jesus says, no, tell him, t- tell him this is it. Uh, he, you know, he, he's right on the money. But then, fearing that people may think John is not that great of a guy, he says he is better than any of the other Old Testament prophets. Why? Because he pointed at me. He was the one who could say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then he turns the whole thing on his head and he says, the least of those in my kingdom will be greater than John. Think about that. Greater than David. Greater than Isaiah. Greater than Abraham. Not because you're more faithful, not because you're more godly, but because you have seen that which everything in history has been pointing, the coming of Christ. The gospel stands at the very center of all that God has been doing. That is his agenda preparing the world for the gospel, and now that it has come, seeing it proclaimed in all the world. I know today when you listen to the radio and you watch television, you, you might think that God's agenda was politics because that's all you hear about, this candidate and what they're saying and how much money and this, da, 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 da. That's not God's agenda. It's not politics. Does he care who is elected president? Yeah, the Bible says God is the one who sets up kings and brings them down. God is intimately involved in that process through his providence. But that's not what he's banking his plans on. God is, his agenda is not social action for the church, that we should go out and, and, uh, and dig wells in every country and, and, and feed and clothe all the poor. Should we be doing that as Christians because we love those made in the image of God? Absolutely. But that's not God's primary agenda for the world. Prosperity for his church in this life is not God's primary agenda for the church or this world. Our agenda no matter how big or how small, is not God's agenda for his church and for this world. His agenda is the gospel. Therefore, that should be our agenda as his people as well. That's the first foundational conviction that we see. The second is this. We believe in the reality of change in God's people. The reality of change in God's people. When we talk about the proclamation of the gospel, we aren't just saying that we're to be, uh, you know, just telling this thing uh, for the sake of telling it. Nor are we saying that, as some even evangelical scholars would say today, that basically salvation has already come. Everybody's already saved. All we have to do is just let people know to clue in uh, to enjoy it. And so because Christ come, everybody's going to go to heaven. That's not what we believe. That's not what we believe the Bible teaches What we believe is that the gospel comes and it brings a fundamental change when it is heard in faith. In his letter to the Colossians, again, that we read earlier, Paul says he is thankful for the Colossians because he has heard of their faith in Christ Jesus, which was produced in them when they heard the word of truth, the gospel. What was the result of their faith in Christ? Paul says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the fundamental change that the gospel brings about to the life of a person. 
It is the kind of change that we should be working for and expecting to happen when we proclaim the gospel. People are moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. That is a fundamental change. It assumes that apart from the gospel, they're not in the kingdom of Christ. They're not going to be saved. They're not going to know God or be known by him. And so on one level, that means all of humanity falls into one of two groups. In the kingdom of darkness or in the kingdom of Christ unsaved, lost, needing to hear the gospel and believe, or having heard the gospel and believed, Christians, God's people. Do you see that? It's one or the other. But on another level, people aren't just in or out. Because life is more complicated than that. Things don't just happen uh, in, in, in uh, disconnected events. There is a process that is taking place. Do you remember Mark 12 when the scribe asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And his response is the first is to love God with all your being and the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. Remember what the scribe says? He tells Jesus, you have answered well. He tells Jesus, you're right. To be humble and to love in this way is better than all sacrifice that could be offered. You remember what Jesus says, says to him? You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now what is he saying to him? He's saying, first of all, you're not in the kingdom of God yet. You haven't pass the pain line and, and, and give up all of what you have believed about the old covenant and how to get right with God and look to me in faith. You're not there yet. But man, you're close. You're close. And so there's a sense in which that person is less lost, if I can talk that way, than somebody else. Are they still lost and going to hell? Absolutely. But are they closer to that point of conversion? Are they, point, are they closer to that point of transference from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God? Absolutely. Imagine, you, imagine two people. One is a man. He's never heard of Christianity. He's never heard of Jesus Christ. He doesn't have a Bible. He doesn't know what church is. And suppose there's another person, a woman, who has Christian neighbors that have befriended her. They have had her over to their house. They have given her a Bible. They have offered to read it with her. They have shared the gospel with her. In one sense, both are lost and going to hell. But in another sense... That second person, that woman, is less lost than the other. She has had gospel contact with her. And now what needs to happen is for the Spirit of God to move, that she might believe and be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son. Okay? You see the point that I'm making here? Furthermore, once you're in the kingdom, what happens? Do you just cross the line and then say, great, I'm in, I'm done, and plop down in a seat somewhere? Kick your legs up and enjoy the ride? That's what a lot of people do. And unfortunately, Jesus says that may mean they're not actually in like they think they are. No, the, the gospel doesn't just save us. It is also what sanctifies us. Listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The gospel doesn't just bring us into the kingdom. It keeps moving and working and changing our lives. Specifically, Paul says that as God's people, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, if you are a Christian, God's final plan for your life is that you look like his son. Not that you grow a beard and have hair and wear a robe, but in godliness, in purity, in glory. That is, that is the, the, what he is working for in your life. So my point is this. Everyone is somewhere in a process of change. They are either 
getting close, having heard the gospel, someone is working with them, they're getting close to the point of conversion, or they're already converted. They're in the kingdom. And now they're in the process of experience, growth in godliness and spiritual life. My point is this. God's plan is spreading the gospel, and that gospel brings about change in people. It transfers them into the kingdom of God, and it transforms them into the image of the Son of God. That is our conviction, foundational conviction, about people and the effects the gospel has on them. But how does the gospel actually work? How does it actually get out there? How does it transform people? This leads us to our third foundational conviction, and that's this, the necessity of preaching God's word. The necessity of preaching God's word. Now, by preaching, I do not mean what I'm doing here. I do not mean something that is fundamentally done by someone who bears the title preacher. I went to go visit uh, someone in the hospital this week, and, and that was how they identified me. Hi, preacher. I'm glad to see you. you know, I'm okay with that. I'm all right with that because that's, that, that's what I do. I preach God's word, but I don't just do it from a pulpit. Preaching God's word in, in the way I mean, it means any sharing of God's word. It might be conversation over coffee. It might be discussion in a Bible study. It might be teaching from a Sunday school class. It might be writing out verses of scripture in a card and mailing it to somebody. Or it might be someone loudly speaking from a pulpit or on a street corner. It's whenever we open our mouths and proclaim the truth of God's word. Regardless of what that looks like, three things are always essential to the the preaching of God's word. Number one, that is the word itself being preached by a person empowered by God's spirit. Those are the three things that are essential for, for for the word of God to go forward, for the gospel to go forward, and for change to take place. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians about him coming to them for the first time and their reception of him and the message. 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, We know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything about you. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says the gospel came to them through his preaching. He stood there. He opened his mouth. He proclaimed the word of God to them, and it was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The result was the Thessalonians heard and believed, and the evidence was that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. When the word of God is heard through the power and proclaimed and heard through the power of God's Spirit, it does a change in our life. It begins to alter the way that we think and see and feel all that is around us. Several years ago, I had an old uh, desktop computer, and the thing was running slower than mud moving uphill. So I said, we've got to do something about this thing. And uh, we still wanted to use it for the kids and stuff. So I said, well, let's just, let's just let's take it back to factory settings. 
So every picture we had on there, every video file, every sermon note or whatever it was that was saved on there all went to CD. And then we put in those uh, master discs they give you and we said, you know, go back to the very beginning. It literally erased whatever the four or five years worth of work that was on there and took it back to the, to the day, in theory anyway, back to the day we pulled it out of the box. Okay, so it's all fresh and it assumes you know nothing and you're setting it up for the first time. Now, of course, as soon as you plug in the Internet, you get like a thousand update messages that you're sitting there going, oh, reboot, 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 getting up to speed and everything else. But but my point is it took it back to the way it was when it came off the assembly line. And here's the thing. As people made in the image of God, we we were originally created with certain factory settings, if I can speak that way. We knew who God was. We had a relationship with God. We knew how to relate to him and to the creation around us. And then to the fall, corruption came. And so our hard drive doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Our mind does not process the world around us the way it should. We see with now prejudices and and certain wrong convictions about our life. We justify our sin rather than seeking justification from God. Instead Instead of desiring to know who God is, we think we can create God in our own image. And the gospel comes. And the Holy Spirit comes with it in power and opens our minds and our hearts and transformation begins to take place and our hard drive starts getting reformatted. Slowly, day by day, year by year, decade by decade, God is taking us back to factory settings. He's taking us back to where we should be in our knowledge of him and how we view the world. So suddenly, even though uh, I may have once been a racist punk, suddenly now I see all people made in God's image and of having infinite worth. Rather than seeing a kid as something, as a bother, not to be cherished, and so killed because I don't want to have anything to do with it through an abortion, now I say it is life made in the image of God, a precious gift, regardless of the difficult circumstances by which it came into the world. I see now not just my own sin as something to be excused, as that's my upbringing, that's what my parents taught me. No, no, it's something to be repented of. And thrown out like trash so that I can know the holiness that God desires for my life. That is what happens when people proclaim the word through the power of God's spirit. Why? Because even though you can sit down with the Bible and you can understand what Paul says, like some some New Testament scholars I know, they know Paul better than I do. They practically have all of his letters memorized. But guess what? They don't believe a lick of it. They write books and just assume, yeah, Paul thought these things, but we know he's an idiot. That didn't really happen. Virgins don't conceive and bear children apart from themselves. That's just, old, that's just old stuff. Jesus was just a man, just a teacher. Paul thought he was something more. What's the problem there? Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, spiritual understanding comes by the Spirit of God. We will not understand and be changed by the Word if God's Spirit is not there. That means we must, in our teaching, in our declaring, in our proclaiming, we must be relying on the Spirit of God, not our own cleverness. Not statistics and, 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 and all kinds of, of amazing things that we can do with technology. We must call out to the Spirit of God and say, work in their life whether that's proclaiming the Word of God here on a Sunday morning or in a small group Bible study or where you're talking to your lost neighbor off the cuff. You shoot a Nehemiah arrow prayer and say, God, help, send your spirit as I I get ready to share the gospel. And then you proclaim the Word of God, praying that he will change. God's plan to advance his agenda 
that is for sinful people to be transferred to the kingdom of his son from the kingdom of darkness and to transform them into the, into the image of his son requires that God's people preach God's word, prayerfully seeking God's spirit to open blind eyes that it might be received. That leads us to our fourth foundational conviction, and that is this, the responsibility of ministry by God's people. The responsibility of ministry by God's people. Now let's just stop and think about this for a minute. I know it's a stretch. I know it's a stretch, especially more for some of us than others. But just imagine for yourself that you're God. You've been working all of human history to bring about the coming of your son, and now you want this gospel message about what he did for sinners to go out through all the world. How are you going to get that message out? Now again, think about it. You're God. What could you do? We were just listening uh, before church, my sons and I, the book of Daniel, and about the handwriting on the wall. I mean, you could literally just make the sky your canvas. And in every language known to man, write in clouds, this is who Jesus is, this is what he has done, you should believe in him. That would be cool, wouldn't it? You just walk outside and say, oh, wow, the gospel. Maybe I should believe that, right? Again, you're, you're, you're God. Maybe, maybe you, you put it into the rings of trees. So that way we chop things down, we do timber, and it falls over, get ready to make paper for our printer. Suddenly the gospel of Jesus Christ is written in the ring. We say, whoa, look at that. God must have surely put that there. We should believe this message. Maybe we just actually encode it right into DNA so that we get to the point now where we're trying to do genetic manipulation, we're looking at things under microscopes, there it is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right into the, 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 the very chromosomes. We say, wow, blows our minds. It's got to be God. We've got to believe this thing, right? I mean, that's just a couple things I can think of. Maybe, maybe you just say, you know, every couple of years, I'm just sending out a fleet of angels, and they're going to go to every tribe, every people, every nook and cranny, and declare the gospel. Maybe you're going to do it yourself. You're going to step out of heaven every couple of years. I mean, think about it. You're God. You can do whatever you want, Right? And what does God do? I'm going to use people. God, I mean, I know you're all wise, but I've seen people. I am a people. This is not apparently a very wise plan. I cannot help but think when Peter says, and even angels long to look into these things, that's part of what they're wondering. God, how is this plan going to succeed when it's them that are doing it? I mean, what kind of people does he use? Average, everyday, talentless, broken, fallible, sinful people. People like me and people like you. That's the plan of God for advancing the gospel in this world. And frankly, it's staggering. It is staggering the responsibility and the privilege that he has given to each and every one of us that we are the means by which he advances his agenda in this world. You say, well, that's true for you. No, it's not just true for me. In the New Testament, there is the, 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 the clear, explicit assumption that if you are a disciple, you will be engaged in making disciples. Yeah, there's a, there's a special place for pastors and a special burden and responsibility. And if you read certain key, testament, key New Testament texts, you don't want this job. But at the same time, on another sense, I'm just a coach on a team. I'm not even necessarily the great coach. I'm certainly not the quarterback. You know, Butterfingers with the ball. But my point is we're all on the same team. We all are advancing towards that goal line with the same mission. We are all involved in the ministry of speaking God's word through specifically the gospel that people might be changed. Just a few weeks ago when we finished up the book of Colossians, what did we see from the, the final verses? Paul gathering together this apostolic band and spinning them off into ministry. What kind of ministry was it? Well, we just read. It wasn't Paul who started the church at Colossae. It was Epaphras. 
a businessman who heard Paul, who got saved, who listened to the gospel he taught for the Old Testament scriptures, then packed up and went back home and started a church. Didn't go to seminary, didn't go to Bible college, didn't have a divine calling like, like the Damascus Road. And yet he did the work of gospel ministry. He, he prayerfully relied on the Spirit, proclaimed the gospel, and he saw lives changed. We look at the entire New Testament. We see Matthew 28. It's not just the 12 that are there. It's all of Jesus' disciples. It's like 70 people that are there. And they all receive the Great Commission. In Romans 15, Paul expects that Christians will be teaching one another, not just receiving teaching from a pastor or teacher. In Hebrews 3, Christians are told, exhort one another daily that you might continue to live faithfully before God. In Philippians 1, all of the Philippian Christians are partners in the gospel ministry with Paul. We go on and on and on and on. But the point that we're trying to make here is that you might see Richard and Joe and myself out in front providing leadership, making decisions, but but we're just part of the same team. We all have the same fundamental call, though it may look different. Not everyone's called to get up here and preach. Not everyone's called to lead a, a community group. Not everyone is, is, is called to teach Sunday school class. But everyone is called to open their mouth, to prayerfully share God's word, and allow the gospel to do the work that it's designed to do. Well, those are our four foundational convictions that we believe are necessary for our church's ministry. But that doesn't sound like much of a plan, does it? I mean, the parts are there. We've been building them slowly. And if we were to summarize where these convictions drive us, I don't think, the elders don't think we could do much better than a summary statement that we found in a book by Tony Payne called The Course of Your Life. And there's actually a note card in your bulletin that has this printed on it. Here's what it says. Because God's agenda for the world is to transfer us into Christ's kingdom and to transform us to be like Christ, then our agenda is to press forward towards maturity in Christ by prayerfully setting our minds on God's word and to move others toward maturity in Christ by prayerfully speaking God's word to them. Loved ones, that's the vision of ministry that we want to set before you this morning. That is the vision of ministry that we want you to latch on to, not just for a couple weeks for, for this year, but for the rest of your life. It is a simple, biblical, achievable ministry that every Christian is called to. And based on those summarizing state based on that summarizing statement of these four foundational convictions, now I want to show you practically what is that going to mean for us as a church? What kind of changes are coming? What is the emphasis going to be on? And again, it's not as if we just, you know, it's not like we did with the computer. We took it back to factory settings. You know, a lot of these things we have been moving in this direction and and but it's been kind of you know, wibbly-wobbly and, and, and not, not cohesive. And, and suddenly through prayer and through study and through a couple of key books, frankly, that God has placed in our hand, we said, okay, here's how these things are meant to be woven together into this cohesive vision of ministry. And so here are some things that we think that need to be changed, need to be emphasized for us to achieve this. Four practical implications. Number one, we will focus on the Bible, not trends. We will focus on the, on the Bible, not trends. Again, we don't want you to walk away from this morning thinking, well, this is the emphasis for 2012. I wonder what it's going to be for 2013. Well, if I'm here, it's going to be the same. And for 2014 and for 2015 and, and on and on, because we think that it's not trendy. It's biblical. 
I mean, that, that, that's what drew us to that summary statement. That is what we've been drawn to uh, in, our, in our study over the last year. And that is a biblical New Testament vision of ministry. And frankly, here is, you know, somewhere in all the books and lectures, you know, that I heard, so I, somebody said that the test of your ministry model is whether or not it's transferable. So, so we ask ourselves if, like on our last mission trip, if we take this vision of ministry and pluck it out from Bay City, Michigan, the United States of America, God bless us, and go over to, to West Africa and plop down the Tomaszek people, does this still work? If the answer is no, then it's probably not that close to the New Testament vision of ministry. If the answer is yes, then it probably is close to a New Testament vision of ministry. And I can't imagine a situation ever where a church is established that that's not a transferable vision of ministry. And so we want you to know we're not coming up with something new here. It's not like this trend. Well, this is a hot thing right now. No, we just want to go back to the Bible. We want to say, man, what did Paul do? What did Peter do? What did the, what did those Christians do? Yeah, they're not perfect, but, but they're close to Jesus. They, they saw him. They heard him. And so the, the, the first best idea of ministry is going to be right with that, those first century Christians, and that's what we're trying to do. Our intention is to lay down tracks from the Bible that we might be faithful to the patterns of ministry that we have seen. And so at the very heart of what we're wanting to do is create a Bible reading movement. A Bible reading movement. In other words, more than anything, we want you to be in God's Word because God's Word by God's Spirit is where transformation and change take place. There's lots of other things that we can do in ministry, but fundamentally, that is God's agenda. Right? Isn't that what we saw again and again? The, the, the spread of the gospel is how he moves people from lostness to savedness, if I can use a, a term there that's never been used before, uh, and, and, and from taking us from immaturity to maturity. So what do we need to do? We need to be in the Bible. We need to be experiencing that change for ourselves so that then we can help those around us experience that change. This is why on Sunday mornings and Sunday school, we, you know, we've got everybody together with this foundational study, you know, how, how you read the Bible, right? It seems like basic stuff, but the reality is, I don't, and I don't, we've never taken a survey of this church, but statistically, the church in America is pitiful when it comes to reading the Bible. I mean, they just don't do it. And, and part of me has to think, I wonder if they just don't know how. I mean, you watch those videos and some of the humorous examples, I've heard people read the Bible like that. And you realize, well, that, 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 that's no good. And so we, so we start with, how are we going to read the Bible for ourselves and with others? And so what we want to do is not just provide practical training on reading the Bible for yourself, but also how to read it with others. How, how can families, just simple, basic things, how can families come together around the Word of God and be changed by it and make disciples in a family context? How can you sit down with somebody one-to-one whether at your house or at a restaurant, and read the Bible with them, either for evangelization or for edification. How, 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 do, we, how do we do that in, the, in a community group context? And so one of, the, one of the practical things with this is that we want to, want to change the ratio even of, of our own study in the Bible. You know, one of the things that we used to do was have more or less topical books that we were reading in our community groups. That's great. There's a place for that. But we want, to, we want to change gears a little bit. And what we want to say is, look, at least half of our time together needs to be through consecutive study of the Scriptures. So we just say, we're going to start with Romans. We're just going to read through it. What does it say? How do we apply it? How do we live it out? And what about Joshua? And what about, uh, you know, what, book after book after book? 
Another 25% we want to be topical Bible studies. Again, you're just doing Bible study, but it might be a series of psalms on a specific topic. Repentance. What does repentance look like? And the remaining 25% will be looking at other books that help explain the Bible on, on some range of topics. So we, again, we, the, the, the heart of all this is a Bible reading movement that we want to encourage you to and we want to equip you to be a part of. We don't want to say, do this, and then you say, I don't know how to do this. Perfect. As long as you're willing, you come see us. And, and for the next nine weeks after we're done with uh, this, this series we're in now for Sunday School, we've got four classes that we're going to rotate through offering you practical training, nuts and bolts. Here's how you do these things. So that way you don't feel left out in the cold. But frankly, it also means we need to rely on prayer. Bible reading movement is great, but again, we're asking for spiritual change, and God's Spirit is the one who does that. And so we need to be constantly asking God to be at work as we speak His words. And one of the problems that the elders have identified is that, at least on the surface, prayer does not seem to be much of a priority for us. That may not be nice to hear, but you come on a Wednesday night sometime for a prayer service, a service dedicated to praying over God's word and needs that we have, and there's not very many people that show up. What are we going to do about that? Well, one of the things that, and this will get into the, really I'm kind of anticipating the next point, one of the things we don't want to do is beat the drum of a program. Well, we've always had prayer service, so you've got to come, you've got to come, you've got to come. I understand that for some of you it's, con- it's not a convenience and by convenience, I don't mean, well, it's not easy. I mean, you can't come because you get out of work too late or you've got school the next morning. You have kids that have school the next morning. Trust me, I understand that as a, as, as a parent. But for some of you, frankly, I, my fear is it's just not a priority. It's just not a priority. And I know some people are uncomfortable coming and praying in public because they don't pray at home. And again, it goes back to a priority. Do we really believe we need God's help? Do we really believe that we are dependent fully on him for everything that we do, for fighting sin in our own life and for helping others mature as well. So as, we, as we're thinking, what can we do? What we, what we want to do is thicken the amount of prayer that we do uh, in our time together. Number one, part of what we, we saw was a very small thickening, but what we did at the end of Sunday school. I know in, in times past I've taught Sunday school, I said, let's take some time and let's pray for the things we've learned. And I get one person praying for 30 seconds. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not spending time in prayer. That's a transition prayer to get us from one thing to the other so we have time to collect our books and our, and our coats. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actually thinking through, what did I just hear from God's word? How can I pray in such a way that it is cemented in my mind and my heart so that as I am going throughout my life in the, in the coming days, God can bring those things back to my mind and convict me or encourage me and transform me into the likeness of Christ. But more than that, we still want a collective time dedicated to coming together and praying as a church. So what are we going to do? Well, if the Wednesday night is not working, then we drop the Wednesday night and we try and find something else. And this may change, but the best thing we could come up with was the first Saturday of every month, we're going to gather here at 9 o'clock on Saturday morning, and we're going to open God's Word, hear a few verses, and then we're going to set ourselves praying. It'll be a time of worship. It'll be a time friendly for family, so we're not just going to be have our heads bound for an hour. Uh, there will be emphasis in different times of praying, different ways in which we're going to pray, perhaps everybody together or taking turns or uh, three or four people together praying. There's going to be some singing to help emphasize and, again, cement the things. If you're, if you're, if you're praising God in prayer, 
How helpful is it then to just stop when you're done and say, no, let's, let's sing, let's continue this praise. So th- that's the plan. That will start next month in February, the first Saturday. We, we, we will be here, at least the three elders. Maybe nobody else will show up and we'll have to come up with something else or you've got a better idea. But in terms of how do we get people together, even once a month sounds sounds small. It sounds like it, it's not that much. But here's the thing. Would we rather have a weekly meeting that nobody shows up to or once a month where the whole church comes together and actually seeks God's face? Maybe less is more for us right now on how we do this. Furthermore, on Wednesday nights, if there's not that, that, that midweek feeling like I've got to do something, what we hope is that you will invest more into that Bible reading movement, that you will seek out a relationship with someone in which to read the Bible for transformation, whether that is a younger Christian that you're seeking to help mature, whether that's a non-Christian and you're just saying, hey, have you ever thought about who Jesus is? Well, yeah. Well, who do you think he is? Well, I don't know, a good teacher or something? How would you like to know what the Bible says he is? Uh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. How about for eight weeks we read through Mark's gospel together and just see who is Jesus? Okay, that sounds good. How hard is that? It's not hard if we believe that God is seeking to change people through the prayerful proclamation of his word, Right? It's not up to us. It's not up to our cleverness or our programs or our techniques. It is simply opening God's word. Yeah, we don't have, if we had a, I don't know what that means. What do you mean there? I'll ask the pastor this week and we'll, we'll find out next week. Let's move on to the next verse. I mean, it, it's, you don't have to be masters of this. The point is getting in the Bible and letting it do the work and doing it prayerfully depending upon God. That leads us to the second implication. That is this, we will build people, not programs. This goes back to what I was saying on Wednesday night. We've got a great program, but nobody shows up. Well, maybe that's not right for our people. We need to think about what is right for individually and corporately the people that we have. Here's, a, here's an illustration of this that I found uh, very applicable and quite humorous at the same time. Back when I was in seminary, the big thing was coffeehouse ministry. That was like exploding. Everybody got to do a coffeehouse ministry of college students. Fine, no problem. But this one church had this great plan for a coffeehouse ministry. Friday nights, 7 o'clock. You know, they have free coffee for the college students that show up. They're going to do, you know, you know, got a guy up there with, you know, spiky hair and a guitar. He's going to sing some praise songs. Then we're going to have a Bible study. Okay, no problem. Guess what? They're promoting, they're promoting, they're promoting, they're promoting. Weeks, 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 months, months. Placarding everywhere this coffee house Bible study on campus. The launch Friday, the first one, one guy shows up. He drinks a cup of coffee. He looks around, gets scared out of his wits because he's the only guy in there and runs out after 10 minutes. Now the people are scratching their heads saying, what did we do wrong? We did it the way this church did it and this church did it. We followed all the norms. What they didn't do was understand the needs of their people. This particular college town, everybody went home on the weekend. There's no students to do the Bible study with. And if they're there, it's because they're studying for an exam or working on a paper. They don't care about that. So the problem was they had a good program, but they didn't have the right people for that program. We don't want to just have empty programs. Uh, because people, people don't always fit in the same program. We want to look at, at, at Al and Melissa. We want to look at Gene and Pat. We want to look at Doug and Tracy. We want to look at Steve and Sharon. We want to look at you as individuals and say, where are you with God? What do you need? How can we keep advancing you along the path of maturity? Where are we collectively as a church? What are our needs? What is the, what is the dynamics of, of who we are? How can we best meet the needs of the people there and move them along in their maturity in Christ. So our goal is to be building people, not programs. It may be as well that it's not just the people of this church. 
In fact, we hope it won't be these people in this church. We want you, even as the elders kind of set the tone and leadership for this, we want you guys. Who is in your life? Who are your neighbors? Who are your coworkers? Who do you see on a regular basis? What do they need? Or do they need to hear the gospel and be transferred into the kingdom of the Son? Are they a new Christian? And they're kind of floundering around. they got the Bible and they're in Leviticus saying, what, what is this? Am I sinning? Am I got, you know, I've got a clothes made out of five different kinds of material. What's going on here? Maybe they need somebody to come alongside them and say, no, 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 no. You know, fulfilled in Christ. There's no way we think through a Christ grid about Leviticus and, say, and teaching them what it means to live the Christian life. Maybe somebody's ready for the point of being trained to do more ministry. Whatever it is, we want not just us as a church, but you as disciple makers every Remember, a disciple maker, every disciple making disciples to be asking the same questions. What do the people around you need? How can I engage them in ministry? How can I speak the word of God to them in a way that helps them grow? This leads to the third thing. We will train ministers, not minions. We will train ministers, not minions. It's not enough for the pastors to do all the work. First, because, at least speaking for myself, we're not that talented. Second of all, we can't be everywhere at once. I know, I've tried. It doesn't work. But more importantly, as we've already said, God calls every Christian to be involved in ministry. And so we want every disciple actively involved in making disciples. That means, though, as pastors, one of our goals is to be training people on how to do that. Some people just need to spend, we need to spend time with them and help them mature. But there are some people who have been, you know, like a piece of chicken marinating in godliness for a long time. We've got to give them some practical instruction on how to actually get out there and now do ministry and be making disciples. And so we invite them, come alongside of us and work with us. And we want you guys, again, to be doing the same thing. Don't assume that you're not replaceable at this church. And that includes myself. Hey, can I tell you that my secret dream is that God will allow me to, to have a certain length of time in ministry where you know, uh, I'm not uh, drooling on myself and saying stupid things at the end, but I still have some faculty and some usefulness. And, and, and he actually calls me out to, to the mission field to train indigenous pastors of churches that are blowing up in, in unreached people groups and they don't know what to do. And I can go in and having some experience and say, here's how you do ministry and here's how you do that kind of stuff. But, but before then, I would love you know, for some better-looking, smarter, younger guy to come to me and say, I feel like God's calling me to be a pastor. Great, i got a church for you. And, and, we, and we send them off to get trained in seminary, and we bring them back, and we let them preach, and we let them make pastoral visits, and we, we give them responsibility, and we let him succeed, and we let him fail. And one Sunday, I'm up here preaching, and the next Sunday, he's up here preaching. Done. That's, that's my dream. But you know what? That means i got to have a mindset of training. I've got to have a mindset of looking for people to replace me. Who, who has got the giftedness? Who has, who has that sense of calling? Who, who, who is already involved in disciple-making, and it's evident that they are fit for that position? But that's just not pastoring. That's the same thing for community group leader. That's the same thing for those that help clean the building. That's the same for, for, for people that uh, you know, uh, are involved in, in, in music or in nursery or in Sunday school. Where we view one another with the idea of training. How can I help this younger Christian be equipped to do ministry for this church and for this community? How can I come alongside them and help them? 
we, we, we don't just want people to just do whatever we say around here. We want people to be equipped to go out and make disciples, whether in the context of this local church or as we spin them out into their neighborhoods, making disciples to their neighbors. All of that requires we will be a, an intentionality to the training mindset. Lastly is this, and frankly, this is, this is the toughest one. We will gather as servants, not consumers. We will gather as servants, not consumers. I say that this is the toughest one. We're not unique in this. Every church I go to, I have observed this problem or heard about it from other pastors. Here's the test. Servant or consumer, what are you thinking? What are you thinking when you show up on a Sunday morning? Are you thinking, I'm here to be served or I'm here to serve? Do you come with the expectation that, people, that I've got my hand out and, 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 and maybe in a good way, spiritually, encouragement and whatever else, but you're going to receive and not give anything back? Or I'll give a little bit back, but mainly I'm here to receive. You know, I hear people say all the time, and on some level it's good. You know, I love Sundays because it's tanking my gas for the week. That's good. That's good. But you know what? We should also come ready to serve. If I wasn't ready to serve, I wouldn't be up here on Sundays. Have you ever thought about that? If I just came with the mindset of I'm going to receive, 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 why in the world would I come up here, spend hours preparing, and, 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 and talk for 30 or 40 minutes, hopefully in the power of the Spirit for you. I, I've come with a servant mindset. And that's not just for people up on the stage. That's for people sitting in the chairs. When you come on Sunday and you choose where to sit, how do you choose where to sit? Do you choose it based on the lighting that you like? And because it's, you know, close to the aisles, you can get out fast. Or because that's where your friends sit. Or because, like most humans, you're a creature of habit and you always sat there. Or do you come in thinking, where do I need to sit today? There's a visitor. Maybe I should sit by them and, and chat them up. Find out why they're here, where they're at, if they're a Christian or not. I know this person's been struggling and they're sitting by themselves. I want to encourage them. I'm going to go sit down right next to them and ask how they're doing. And maybe even pray for them before the service starts or before the service ends. Maybe we can even go so far as to pray on the way to church, in the car, as we're walking across the parking lot, God help me to know who I should sit by today. Maybe you get here and the coffee's not made. Instead of complaining the coffee's not made, you find the coffee and you make it. All of these things are very small things to think about, and yet it reveals that, that frankly, for most of us, we struggle in this area. We are consumer mindset rather than servant mindset. Our, our goal is, is not to come and to serve. Our goal is to be served. And I'm pretty sure Jesus said that was not the right kind of attitude to have because that's not the attitude he had when he came. All of us are meant to be making disciples. All of us are meant to be prayerfully speaking God's word. That means all of us have a ministry to one another and to those that would show up in our midst on Sunday mornings. Don't, don't just rush out of here thinking you've got to beat the Methodist to the Cracker Barrel when church is over. You know, you see the person next to you and they were crying during the sermon. Find out what's going on. Find out how you can encourage them. Find out how you can pray for them. Or perhaps you see someone who looked like they were half asleep. You, you sit next to them and say, you know, I found point three very convicting. How, how do you think we should, we should live differently this week because of that? Now, I guarantee you, until that becomes the culture of the church, you're going to be like, whoa, what is this about? You know, but guess what? Step across the pain line. I mean, what are they going to do? We'll get up and leave? Big deal. I mean, you know, where is your confidence and what people think of you or what God thinks of you? 
All of us have this, this, uh, this ministry of encouragement, of speaking God's word, of daily investing in one another. And guess what? One of the times we're always together is Sunday morning. What better time to take advantage of doing that? Don't just think like a consumer. Think like a servant. How can I come when we gather together as God's people, whether it's Sunday morning in Sunday school or Sunday morning at a worship service or Sunday night at community group or Saturday mornings on, on prayer service or any time during the week when you're gathering together with somebody, be asking the question, how can I serve the word of God to them? In your bulletin today, there is a card that's there. It looks remarkably similar to this card. It's a very simple card that is, that is meant to just remind you of where we're going in the coming weeks and months, Lord willing, the coming years, and what our ministry will look like, and to offer a kind of gentle corrective when we find ourselves straying where we shouldn't. The front lays out the summary statement, because God's agenda for the world is to transfer us into Christ's kingdom and to transform us to be like Christ, and our agenda is to press forward towards maturity in Christ. How do we do that? By prayerfully setting our minds on God's word and to move others toward maturity in Christ by prayerfully speaking God's word to them. And then on the back is a series of questions. You could ask yourself, maybe, at the, maybe for the first couple of weeks or you ask it every day. At the very least, I would say on Sunday mornings, have I made God's agenda my agenda? How am I pressing forward towards maturity? Am I making time with God and others in prayer and the word a priority? How am I helping move others toward maturity? Am I seeking out disciple-making opportunities? Am I engaged in everyday ministry? And then there's a verse, a command that is given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostle that summarizes really what all this is meant to look like. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That is my prayer for us individually and collectively. That, that, that command from Colossians 1.10, that expectation would be the reality of our life as we seek to minister together, prayerfully speaking God's word for transference and change in one another and in the world. Father, we're so thankful that you have given us this great privilege of being involved in the advancement of your kingdom. Father, we gave some silly illustrations, but it is an amazing thing that for thousands of years you were prepping the world for the invasion of your son and his atoning work. Father, you were getting people ready. Even the prophets were foretelling what he would do, and now we have the great privilege of being on this side of the cross, not only having seen with clarity the gospel of your grace, but now having been entrusted with it as a message to share with one another and with the world. God, I pray that you would cause us to stand in awe of that privilege and that responsibility. God, at one level, help us to see it as a very profound thing. And on another level, God, help us to see it as a very normal, everyday thing. It is not something that we need hours of preparation for. It is not something that we need years to train for. But God, this very day, in 10 minutes as this service concludes, we can turn to one another and be encouraging one another with your word. God, we pray that in every way you would not build this church or its ministry for our own sake, for our own reputation, or for the ego of the pastors or our members. God, you would do it so that your agenda would be advanced. 
so the gospel might go forth, that people might experience life change, coming from darkness to light and ever increasingly being changed and transformed into the glory of your Son. It's in His name that we ask these things. Amen.